Wildwood Community Church exists to glorify God by connecting people to Christ, His worship, His community, and His mission. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. We are in the midst of a series called First Responders, a series that is looking at the very first people who showed up on the scene as Jesus began his public ministry and looking at how they responded to Jesus. You know, when there's a a crisis or a big event uh, that happens in our world, the police, the fire, the ambulance, they show up. Right, And in their response, we find some inspiration for our response. And in the first century, as Jesus walked on the scene, there are a number of people who were first responders to his message. And in their response, we find some connection with our lives. Obviously, in many times in the past, we've looked at the response of the followers of Jesus and his disciples. But also, there are things that we can learn by looking at those that had questions or doubts or even rejected Christ. And in Matthew chapters 11 and 12, we see several examples of those who were challenged when Jesus first showed up to respond in faith. And so, we're looking at that over the next several weeks. Today, we're going to look at Matthew 11, verses 20 to 30. But before we do that, I want to just uh, tell you a story. I saw this uh, online several years ago, and I've thought about this. It's an event that happened back in November of 2010, and it involved a man named Bill Nye, the science guy. I don't know if you know who Bill Nye is, but he was giving a talk at USC, Southern Cal, And he's walking up onto the stage to give his presentation in front of a packed auditorium, and he passed out cold on the stage. And he was out for 10 seconds. Now, while he was out, it was really surprising what happened. Because instead of anybody running to his assistance, people just pulled out their cell phones and started tweeting about it. They took pictures, they sent text messages, but nobody came to his aid. He stumbled to his feet, he began his presentation, and then he went out again, and and all that went out from that room were a series of texts and tweets and Facebook posts. Now, when when I tell you that story, I know there are many of you who are thinking, millennials, you you thought it, didn't you? There's some of you that were thinking that. You're going to blame it on a generation, But, but friends, don't do that, because I think that this kind of indifferent response in the face of a significant event is something that is human. It's not millennial. There's technology that exists that makes certain kinds of expressions of a non-response possible today, but indifference in the face of crisis is something that humans have always been tempted to give. As a matter of fact, go all the way back 2,000 years ago and look at what happened when Jesus showed up on the scene. Jesus walked onto the stage of Galilee, and he revealed himself as the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. But rather than people running to his side... In responding in faith, many just wanted to tweet about it. Now, the technology didn't exist, but they stood at the back and they gave a polite golf clap. And they told their neighbors, hey, come and see the show. This new guy's in town. He's doing some interesting things. But there wasn't a response of genuine faith. Friends, in that lack of response in the first century that we see in the pages of the Scripture, I think we we see some, some hints for us as well. All too often when faced with the reality of who Jesus is, we want to respond with a polite golf clap and say, well, that is really nice. Or we come to church and we think, that was a nice message, Pastor, or thanks for that verse. That's a precious verse. That's a nice idea. And yet when we have that kind of cavalier indifferent response, pleasant though it may be, 
It's not the depth of the response that Jesus requires and demands. And this morning, as we look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30, my, my hope and intent in our time today is that we are both challenged and encouraged. That we're challenged to actually respond to the person of Jesus Christ. To not just sit back and give it a golf clap, but actually respond to him in a significant way. But also encouraged that when we look to the pages of Scripture to find out how we are to respond, we find that we're responding to one who is gentle and lowly in heart, one who loves us and invites us to come near. So this morning, we're going to see that challenge and that encouragement as we find three things inside of Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 30. So if you've got a Bible open there, we're going to spend the rest of our time in, in Matthew 11 today. Verse 20 begins and says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Well, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Friends, inside of those few verses today, we're going to see three things about how we might respond to Jesus Christ. The first thing that we're going to see is this. We respond to him in light of his revelation. We respond to him in light of his revelation. Now, what we, we see this in the location where Jesus did the majority of his earthly ministry. It was in one specific location in the northern part of Galilee, north of the Sea of Galilee, in a little triangle between three cities, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Now, when you look here on the map, that large Africa-shaped lake is the Sea of Galilee. And just on the northern shore, you see those three cities outlined with that triangle. And what 11 verse 20 tells us is that a majority of the miracles that Jesus did happened right there in that space. Well, what are some of those things? This isn't a comprehensive list, but it is representative. Some of the things that happened there. Jesus healed a blind man. Mark chapter 8 tells us in the city of Bethsaida. The feeding of the 5,000 happened in this general area according to Luke chapter 9 and verse 10. There was a paralytic who was healed. Remember, they pulled the roof back and they lowered him down. That was in the home of Peter's mother-in-law's house. 
in this, the, the place of Capernaum. And the Sermon on the Mount was preached just on the hillside right outside these cities in Matthew chapter 5, verses, uh, Matthew chapters 5 to 7. Now, that's a lot of stuff, and there are many more miracles we could list that all happened in that triangle. Now, when we see that, we think, okay, so a lot of stuff happened up there. What's the big deal? Well, let's put this into a little bit a bigger context. And there's no bigger context we can place this in than to begin with the universe, all right? So let's, let's say, let's begin with the universe and think of all of the places in the universe, okay? Now let's, let's zoom in. Out of all the places in the universe, Jesus comes to earth. And then of all of the countries that exist, all of the land areas in all of the world, Jesus came to one specific country. Let's go back maybe one, one slide. He comes to Israel. See right there in, in the middle. Out of all of those places, he comes to Israel. And then not only to Israel, but even inside of that little bitty country, he goes to the north. See that little blue dot at the top? That's the Sea of Galilee. He goes just on the northern edge of that area. And let's zoom in one more time. And he's in this little triangle, and the majority of his miracles happened there. Now, again, we're tempted to, to think that that was an area even bigger than it is. But those locations, Capernaum, Bethsaida, Corson, the distance from Capernaum to Bethsaida, about four miles. About four miles. So let me just draw a map for us with something that we can understand. Let's say that, let's begin right here. This is point one of the triangle. Let's go to Target. That's point two, and then Bazell Library on the OU campus, that's point three. If you draw a triangle from here to Target to Bazell and back here, the majority of Jesus' miracles happened in a space that small. Now, that's pretty remarkable, right? The density of revelation that happened in that place was huge, and it wasn't like it happened in a triangle that was, you know, New York City, right? Millions of people live in a triangle that small in New York City. This is in northern Galilee. Capernaum, a city of just a few hundred people at the best. And it's in that spot that the majority of the revelation of the person of Christ happened in the first century. Now, because that revelation was so densely focused in that area, Jesus had a desire that there would be a certain response from those who heard him. And that response was not simply their applause. They applauded. They showed up. They attended. There were crowds that gathered there. But Jesus' desire was not just that he would get a little golf clap from the people that lived in these cities. His desire was that they would repent. It says in verse 20, they did not repent. And because they did not repent... Jesus pronounces a woe upon these cities. He says to Chorazin and to Bethsaida and to Capernaum, he says, woe upon you because you have received a density of revelation that nobody has ever seen because God himself is walking in your midst and you've not responded in repentance. You've not responded in faith. And because of that, judgment will come upon you. 
That's what Jesus says. He, he uses a couple of examples. He says, if, if the things that happened in these cities had happened in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. Now, I think Jesus is using some hyperbole here. I don't think that he's really talking about the repentance of Tyre and Sidon. I think that what he is saying is, he says, hey, the most pagan worshiping place in the world had a better chance of responding than you have because of the way that you've responded to me. Tyre and Sidon were, were centers of worshiping other gods. And Jesus said, places that didn't have the Old Testament, places that didn't have the prophecy, would have responded with more faith than you have. He says to Capernaum, I mean, I, I lived in your city. Jesus made that his home base. I lived in your city. Instead of being exalted, though, you're going to be torn down. Why? Why? Because you didn't respond. He says that the city of Sodom, a city of great sensuality and sin, and was destroyed by God back in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. He says Sodom would have repented if I'd have showed up in their city. Jesus was challenging them in a very specific way. What he was saying to them was that the intended response to the revelation of God is repentance. That's what was expected. That was what was intended, and yet it did not happen. And what we see is Jesus demonstrates in this section that we are held accountable for what we have access to. He says, when the revelation came, those cities, those locations, those individuals had a responsibility to respond in faith, and when they did not, they will be held accountable for that on the day of judgment. Well, after making that general statement, Jesus continues in verse 25, and he, he says this. He says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. What's, what's he getting at here? He's now making sense of why is it that a sovereign Savior would show up at places that would reject him? I mean, if he's sovereign, if he's a Savior, if he knows, why did he show up there? And he says, it wasn't the masses that were going to respond to this message, but there was a faithfulness of God to deliver the message to them because of their history and God's election of them. But in the midst of that revelation, many would reject it including those that are described here as the wise and the understanding, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the political leaders in the country. They all reject Christ, or most all reject Christ, certainly in any official way. But who receives him? It says here, little children. I don't think he's talking just about youth. I think other passages talk about youth coming to Jesus, but I think that the significance here is in comparison to those who have title and position and, and knowledge in those ways and power, Jesus said it's, it's those who are dependent that are receiving this message. It's those who are, who are coming to me and are repenting, those who are not looking to defend their own position but are looking to me to find their identity. Jesus says it's, it's those to whom God is revealing his will. Verse 26 says, for such was God's gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father in whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. This section right here uh, is walking into the territory of election and predestination. And so here's what I want to do. 
I want to affirm that this passage is talking about the election of God presenting revelation to some and calling them to salvation. That's what this passage says. But I don't want you to get off that easy. You're like, that doesn't sound like I'm getting off easy at all. Well, here's what I mean. When we study Scripture and we come upon a verse like this, you know what we're tempted to do? We're tempted to just put on our theological think tank hat and want to argue with the verse about what other verses mean and all these kinds of things and miss the point of what Jesus was getting at in this, in this, in this context. I think what Jesus was getting at in this context was something far more personal and something that you and I cannot escape. What Jesus was getting at is he says, when the revelation of God was presented to these people, it was presented not by accident, but by sovereign choice. Jesus says, I have intentionally shown people who I am with the intention that they would respond in repentance and faith. If they do, there is hope. If they don't, there is judgment. That's the point of the passage. Remember, this is a location, a physical location in the world where a density of the revelation of God was available to people, and the intention was that they would respond in repentance. Now, friends, here's the thing for you and I. We live in America, don't we? Last I checked, we live in Oklahoma, America. And when we live in Oklahoma, America, do you realize all of the access to the revelation of God that we have? I mean, it's amazing. How many Bibles do you have? Just, just think about it. How many Bibles do you have? You got the one in your hand. You got the one in your pocket, your phone. You got the one on your, your iPad. You got the one on your computer. You got the, the one on the shelf. You got the one on the coffee table. You've got access to the Bible all over the place. How, how many sermons can you listen to in a week? Well, I don't know. How many hours do you have? I mean, you may not have the physical capacity to do it or the desire to do it, but you have access to all of it. How many Bible studies can you be a part of? How many groups of believers can you gather freely to worship and to sing praise to God and receive instruction from the Word of God? Friends, we have so much, and all of that is empowered and driven by the Spirit of God that God has, has freely given to those who trust Christ so that there's a testimony around us about the person of God. It's, it's all around us, friends. And if you're here today and you're listening to this message and you're following along in this passage, then the revelation of the identity of Jesus Christ as the Son of God is right there in front of you. And here's the challenge for us. What we have access to, we're responsible for. How will we respond to that revelation? Will we just respond with a little golf clap? Oh, Jesus, you're nice. Oh, Jesus, you're great. Or will we repent and say, Jesus, you're holy and perfect, and I'm not? I'm in need. The intended response is a response of repentance. First thing that we see. The second thing we see begins to open up the encouragement category for us. If that's the challenge that we're to respond what we are presented with, how do we respond? The second thing we see is that we respond by coming to Him as He gives us rest. That's what happens. Come to him and he will give you rest. Verse 28, beloved, Jesus says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is looking out on a, a sea of people who have been burdened and weighed down by religion and practice. 
They've been burdened by, by Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law, the wise and the understanding. Those people have laid on people again and again and again another thing to do, another thing to do, another thing to do, so that people are getting crushed. And not only are they getting crushed with things that they are to do, but they're crushed by the memories of their past and their failures. And not only, not only are they crushed by the memories of their past and their failures, but they're crushed by their lack of optimism that they can live a better day tomorrow than they live today. Does this sound familiar to anybody here? There's this crushing blow that comes when we try to make ourselves right with God through a program or a practice. It doesn't work. But what does Jesus say? Come to the program. Come to the class. Come to the service. No. What does he say? Come to me. Charles Spurgeon says, It's not to doctrine or ordinance or ministry are we to come first, but to a personal Savior. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. It's in Christ that the rest that we need is given. It's in Christ that the rest defined as the salvation that we can experience, our hope for eternity, our sins forgiven, our relationship with God secure. It is found not in a program. It's found not in a practice. It's found in a person. It's found in Jesus Christ who gave his life as a sacrifice for our sins and invites us to come to him so that because his work is done, he can give us his rest. That's That's the story of the gospel. Jesus says, come to me. Friends, there are so many other things that that we think that we need to do to experience the salvation rest of God. We're we're sold a lot of lines, just like those in the first century. You know, come to discipline. Come to a regular participation in a ceremony to get your weekly installment of salvation. Come to fervency. Come to the mission field. Come to whatever commitment you can give. And in that commitment, you find your salvation. In other words, do something great. God will be impressed and he will accept you. That's not what Jesus said. That's what the Pharisees said. What did Jesus say? Come to me. Come to me. Repent. Fall at my feet like a child. Independence, say, We need you, Lord. You're our only hope. In that step, we find rest. We find our salvation. Friends, have you taken that step? Have you come to Jesus in response to his call and laid at his feet and repented of your sin and found the forgiveness that he offers? If you're carrying around the weight of religion, and hoping it will give you life. It doesn't. But in Christ, there's rest. Come to him. Come to him. Second thing that Jesus does, though, after inviting them to come to him, is he talks about a second kind of rest, and he says this. He says, if we walk with him, we will also find a rest. In other words, come to him, he will give us rest. But walk with him and we will find rest. Well, where do we see this? We, we see this in verse 29 and 30. 
Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's, what's Jesus talking about here? Well, he's using an analogy here talking about a yoke. And, and maybe to help explain this idea, imagine that you were in the field and you were trying to get a lot of work done and uh, you needed to have some animals help you get this heavy equipment moved to plow a field or something. And so you got a couple of oxen and you brought them together. Now, I realize that all of us, this is an illustration we can all relate to because we all work with a lot of oxen. But uh, in the first century, this made a lot of sense. Jesus said, hey, you know, if you're trying to get a lot of work done, you get a couple of oxes because together they can do more than they can apart. And the way you get two oxes to get a lot of work done together is not by just putting two oxes in the field and say, hey, go get some work done. You, you yoke them together. You, you attach them together. Because when they are attached together, they can accomplish more together than they can apart. But when they're attached together, there, there needs to be an ox that the other ox can learn from. There needs to be an ox that knows the path, that knows the direction. And insofar as that second ox walks alongside that first ox, they're able to accomplish a lot through the primary effort and wisdom of the primary ox. Does that make sense? Let me give it an example that maybe makes a little more sense to us. How many of you have ever walked your dog? You walk your dog or your dog walks you. We had a dog that walked us. We didn't walk the dog. Um, so we're out with this little dog, and, and we would have it on a chain and, uh, or a, a, a leash and a little choke collar on the end of it, and he would want to go anywhere except for where I wanted to go, and his walk was not easy or light. As a matter of fact, it was a painful effort on that dog, and it would take that dog getting exhausted before he would ever follow me and where we were going. And when he would follow me when where we were going, you know what, I, I really think, though, he never told me, he never sent me a thank you card or flowers on my birthday, nothing. But I'm guessing that, that his experience on the walk was always better when he went with me, right? The same thing is true for followers of Christ. When we come together and we come to the feet of Christ and we fall and we find the rest of salvation given to us, Jesus then says, okay, get, let's get up, let's go. And when we say, go where? He says, just stick with me, yoke together with me, and allow me to be the one that teaches you where we go. Learn from me. Allow my commands to be your direction. Allow me to lead you, Jesus says. And when we walk with Christ, we don't walk with a program. We walk with a person who can carry the load. Because of that, we find that the yoke is easy and the burden is light. It's light because he's providing the power. And it's easy because it's easy. Now, what does that mean? Because I think all of us could, could sit here and think of a few things that have happened to followers of Christ that don't seem easy. Think of martyrdom of, of Christians and persecution around the world. That doesn't seem easy. But it's helpful for us to look at what that word easy means in the original language. The, the word easy in the original language actually means well-fitting. It's one of the pro proper translations of it. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, come and yoke yourself together with me and you will live the life that I have tailored for you. You will live the life that I created for you, the life that you were born to live. 
It's light and easy because it's the challenge we experience will be momentary and eternity is wonderful. But we will walk in the life that God has created us to live. Jesus said, when we do that, attached to the one who is lowly of heart, the one who loves us and cares for us, when we attach ourselves to him and when we walk in obedience to him, we find our lives characterized by his rest. Friends, too many of us in our lives live our lives like my dog on the chain. We have come to Christ and we have accepted his salvation and then we want to run off in our own direction pursuing all of the things that smell good to us or that look good to us or that sound good to us instead of learning from him. When we do that, we find ourselves in so many challenges, don't we? We find ourselves lacking rest. Jesus said there's a life we were created to live. It's found as we come to him, as we yoke ourselves to him, as we follow him. Friends, to all of us in this room, we are invited to come to Christ and to stay with him. Now, as we conclude our service today, we're we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Now, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal. At the front and in the middle and at the back of the room, we have stations where there is bread and there is juice. And those two symbols are symbols that Jesus gave the church 2,000 years ago as reminders of who he was and what he had done for us. And Jesus said, as often as we eat those elements from then on, we are to do so in remembrance of him. So today, as we conclude this worship service, here is what I want to invite us to do. I, I want us to imagine, though Jesus is not physically present, these are, are not, nothing magical is happening at these trays, but they're reminders. But with the trays, let us, let us remember that Jesus is inviting us to come. And so as we continue our time of worship, you will be able to come to one of the tables. For those in the front section, If you are trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, whether that is something that you've done in the past or maybe something you're doing today for the very first time, you're trusting in him as you have heard the call to come to him. If it's something that is new or something that is old, but you are trusting Christ today, we invite you to come. These first two sections, you can come to the front two tables. The front half of the back section, we have tables on the side. I invite you to come there. In the back half of the back section, we have two tables at the back. You'll approach from the middle aisle, you'll receive the elements, and you'll return to your seats down the outside aisles. But as you do, here's what I want you to imagine. As you come, I want you to remember that Jesus is offering you salvation. And as you grab those elements, I want you to remember the rest that he provides for your eternity. And then... As you grab those elements and you walk back, I want you to imagine that you are yoking yourself with Christ and you are walking with him and he is providing the direction and leadership for you in your life. And I want you to meditate and think about the areas of your life where you're pulling against the chain. But this morning as we celebrate communion, you could be reminded of God offering you rest as you yoke yourself to him. So let me pray before we begin. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship today. And thank you for every heart in this room that is, that is here today and has been presented with the revelation of Jesus Christ and who he is. Father, I pray that you would help us to be people who respond in faith, every one of us, that we would come to him and receive the rest of salvation that only he can offer. 
And Father, I, I pray that we would just continue in faith and walk with him and provide, find the rest that he provides for our every day. And so, Father, I, I pray that you would help our hearts be focused on you as we worship, as we receive these elements together. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.